verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. I'm sure it's not often enough, it's not often enough that I step up here and feel the weight of proclaiming the Word of God. Um, I'd like to think it's more than it is probably. But man, when you come across a, a passage like this, and Will was saying, you know, really don't have favorite passages but kind of do and I wouldn't say this is <clears throat> my favorite passage but doggone it's a good one right um, we've been working through Titus uh, this is our fourth message so we've had three messages prior to this I'm coming to the end of chapter two of this short letter and we've seen Paul introduce himself in the letter which he was leading in that introduction with his theology and his doctrine. And then he started giving Titus instructions on what Titus was to do on the island of Crete, where Paul had left him, beginning with appointing elders in every town, explaining that the need for these upright, doctrinally sound men is particularly great there due to the truth of the Cretan proverb <clears throat> that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Paul went on to give specific instructions for older men, older women, younger women, specific instructions to Titus himself and also to slaves. Everybody has a role, and Titus is to teach and help them find and fulfill those roles. <clears throat> and all of that has been tied together by calls, uh, Paul's call for Titus and these Cretans to, quote, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior by their faithful obedience to the commands. <clears throat> Show the beauty of God by your deeds, as the Holy Spirit of God empowers you to do the things that he has commanded you to do. So, today we have this high, glorious, beautiful doctrinal segment to help us cement all of this before we move forward and probably, Lord will, and finish this letter next week. We're going to take all of chapter 3 as one passage, one message, more than likely. But for today, <clears throat> we'll start with verse 11, and I'm actually just going to read the whole thing again, and then we'll start back in verse 11. It's just, I mean, because, I mean, just how awesome is this passage? I just want to read it all again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So we start with the word for. So what's this for? For. It's not a golf term here. We're not golfing. Um, So we just came out of all those commands. And where it's been two weeks, it's kind of easy to lose this association, to lose this thought pattern. And we do, golly, we're so prone to segment these letters to segment these passages, and I've talked so many times before about the the ending of Romans 7 and the beginning of Romans 8 and how you miss the power of the therefore in Romans 8.1 if you don't take into consideration. He just said, I serve the law of sin with my flesh. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You lose that if you don't read this together. And, and we're so prone to segment things. And we've, we've got to do that as far as preaching because we can't just really get in depth in a whole letter. So we break it down. But remember what we said the last time. We came out of all of those commands to older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus, and slaves. Tell them to be this. Tell them to do this. To quote Eric Smith, tell them to walk this way. That's, I don't know. Um, and the, the, he we wasn't quoting Eric Smith, by the way. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, tell them to be this, do this, walk this way. And those commands are followed by the why. Four. And that four transitions from the how of the commands to the why of the doctrine. You do what you do because you know what's true. Why should older men be sober-minded? Why should older women teach and train the younger women to love their husbands and children? Why should young men be self-controlled? Why should Titus be a model of good works? Why should slaves be pleasing to their masters in all things? For, keep that in mind, because that's imperative to understand with where we're headed. All of these things are to be done. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus, slaves. All of these things are to be done for the grace of God has appeared. And on to the rest of the passage. This passage today is the reason why all those things should be done. And as is so consistent with Paul, the main reason for the four is the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared. I should fulfill my role and keep the commands for the grace of God has appeared. And again, I'm, I'm just so afraid we're, used, we're so used to that word grace that we don't fully appreciate it as much as we could or should. We don't hesitate, stop, and meditate on it enough. So I'm going to go back and reuse the definition we had for grace back in 1 Timothy um, Bob actually texted me and said, send me that definition because I, I want to look at it and think about it. Um, and actually, I went back to our text message to find the, 
the definition again, by the way. That's funny. Um, and so that definition for grace that we saw in 1 Timothy is the same word, same definition here. And grace is the merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Now note that. We sang this morning, Amazing Grace, that saved us, and we should, but grace is not just for our initial conversion, kind of what Lucas was saying this morning. But grace is also the holy influence that presently, in the here and now, kindles us to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Grace is not just how we were saved, but it's also how we do what God commands. It is power for our doing God's will and not just favor that adopted us into his family. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. And the grace of God has appeared, Paul says, personifying grace embodying grace as a visible, tangible presence that came on the scene, appeared at a point in time in the past. The word for appeared is epiphaneo, and it means something coming to light that wasn't visible before. So we're reading through the Bible right now. We're in the Old Testament. We're in Judges now. I won't tell you what I said Wednesday about Judges, but it's all right. Judges is hard. The Old Testament kind of feels like, oh man, oh man. And there's a groaning, there's a longing, there's a waiting. There's an expectation in the Old Testament. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for grace. And Paul says here to Titus that grace has appeared. Something that wasn't visible before now has come to light. And when was that? What's Paul referring to? Of this epiphaneo. He's referring to the life and the ministry of Jesus, right? Grace appeared, listen, when God entered the created world as a person who was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life, keeping the law of God to perfection, pleasing God in all that he did, then laying his life down to the point of death on a cross where he paid the penalty for the sins that we had committed, where he died, and then he was buried, then he came back to life, showed himself alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days, then he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, where, as Lucas said again this morning, where he ever lives to make intercession for his people until the day he returns to earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and judges the nations and rules all the universe forever with his redeemed people. That happened. Historically, in real time, God put on flesh, became a person. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now hold on. What's that mean? The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. All people? Will all people be saved? 
The Bible is clear that some people will not be saved, but instead will spend eternity in hell, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. So then what's this mean? Well, the Bible's clear in many places that all men everywhere are commanded to believe the gospel. And there's so many verses to say that Jesus died for the world. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The world, whoever. Those are universal words, right? Any and all in the world who believe will have eternal life. In like manner, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Is that the same thing? Is the grace that has appeared effective to all people? No, we already said that some will not believe, but they're commanded to believe. Jesus showed up on the scene in Mark's gospel, Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And notice he didn't say, will you please ask me into your heart? Pick me for your team. Please. It's a command. Repent and believe the gospel. Period. All are commanded to believe. And we know that not all will believe. The command is for all and some will be disobedient to that command. So did the grace of God appear to all people? Yeah. Is it applied to every person's life? No. Not those who don't believe it. And be clear that those unbelieving people are consciously disobeying the command to believe. Romans 1, 18-23 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. My slides aren't changing, by the way, if y'all can pick me up back there. Ever since the creation of the world, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. It is for this reason that unbelievers will justly spend eternity in hell for not believing. The grace of God did appear for all people, but some refused it, disobeyed the command to believe it. It was available for all, commanded to all. But for those who believe, that grace is effective in saving them. We saw in 1 Timothy 4.10 when we talked about this some, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. God does indeed give grace to all. There is a common grace. And there is available grace, but there's a special application of that grace for those who believe. You're like, my brain's got a cramp. Stay with me. And why do those who believe, believe? Ephesians 2, 4-10, to right? Right? 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for... By grace you've been saved through faith. And and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you believed, you believed because grace appeared and faith was given as a gift when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, like everybody was. And so that grace had appeared for all people and was applied to some people. Why? The giving of the gift by God himself, why not to all people? I do not know. Why any people is a better question. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. It's not fair. And I'm not saying that to be mean or haughty. It's not fair. Fair is that we all deserve death, hell, and the grave. That's fair because we're rebels. But but God, God made me this way, did he? That's not what Romans 1 said. We suppress the truth with our unrighteousness. Now, there's lots more we could say here, but time. And I want to point something else out about this quickly as well. All that may be a moot point to even explore election and free will from this verse. Because when taken in context, this passage is probably talking about something else altogether. Now, we just saw in the last message, like I said, that Paul was giving commands to older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus, and slaves. Well, that's what? All kinds of people i got three commentators. These are just common potatoes that we call commentators. The first commentators, you'll never hear that word the same now. Towner and Marshall, they say this, these problems disappear if we accept the other possible translation to be precise, namely, I mean, all is thus limited here to believers... But the universal emphasis remains all people are potentially believers. So that's one set of commentators. Dave Campbell says in his comments, a better translation might read like this, for the grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all men, that is to all kinds and classes of people. God's grace knows no barriers. It recognizes no distinctions. It brings salvation to young and old, rich and poor, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile alike, like Lucas read this morning from Galatians. And finally, Kent Hughes and Brian Chappelle say this, the context makes it clear that Paul is not contending that worldwide evangelism has already occurred, but rather that the message of God's grace has been made available to all kinds of people by reminding his readers that the message of the Savior has not been withheld from anyone on the basis of age, class, or gender. Paul diffuses the discriminatory objections of those who would deny their testimony to others on the basis of societal barriers. So contextually, 
This makes the most and simplest sense. Anybody ever heard of Occam's Razor? i got some people nodding. That's exciting. Nerds like me. It's good. <laughs> Basically, what Occam's Razor, if you boil it down, which is funny because that's exactly what Occam's Razor does, the simplest answer is usually the right one. Start with the simplest answer and see if it might be right because usually it is. And this seems pretty simple and straightforward. Again, if you read the letter as one unit, if you come out of older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus and slaves, the salvation of God has, or the grace of God has appeared to all kinds of people, just like all these things. And so, all y'all, all y'all sinners, don't, no matter what, 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 what your ethnicity or past has been. And I really think that's what this passage means. It's not a debate about election and free will. It's the universality of the power of the gospel to save all kinds of people. So when you read the letter as one unit in a flow of thought, that's what you end up with, I believe. So, verse 12. We said the grace of God had appeared. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all kinds of people, every kind of people. And what does that grace do? That grace trains us. Grace trains us. Now get that. Grace doesn't just show up to save us and keep us on a shelf till we get to heaven one day in the future. No, grace trains us. The word means to instruct, the word for uh, trains means to instruct and shape a child through teaching and discipline in the knowledge, skill, morals, social behavior, and other necessary facets of becoming a well-rounded and productive citizen. That's pretty good. That's what grace does for us. And what is doing this training, this rearing here in our passage? Grace is. The grace that appeared. Remember that definition of grace? The merciful kindness by which God, exerting His holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. So marry those two definitions together, training and grace, and you get a power that is helping us to know what to do and what not to do in order to be productive, fruitful members of God's kingdom as we walk through this world. And verse 12 says that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Again, God doesn't save us in order just to bless us with heaven. No, we are blessed in order to be a blessing. And we do that, we become a blessing by renouncing two things and living three ways. First, we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Renouncing them. And then we live lives that are self-controlled. Man, that word keeps coming up, doesn't it? Living lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. And now we say all the time, especially here, especially me, that the Christian life is not about do's and don'ts. And I believe that is a good statement. And I also believe that there's no way around the truth that we are called to renounce some things and to live in some ways too. To renounce means to deny or reject or refuse something offered. And so don't do the thing or those things. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. 
And I mean, that's not a surprise, right? That don't need much exegeting. But remember, we're talking about what grace trains us to do. Grace trains us to reject anything in our life that is ungodly or having to do with worldly passions. Grace trains us to do that. Well, of course it does. This is not don't do ungodly things. Don't participate in worldly passions. It's training us to know what is God's will and what is best for us and what is not. Like an athlete who doesn't eat junk food or who doesn't stay drunk all the time in order to attain to a better level of physical fitness, the grace of God trains us to know that these things aren't according to God's will and so how to say no to them. But it's also never just don't do something or some things. The grace of God trains us to renounce, but it also trains us to live, embrace, do things that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I loved, and I know I've said it a few times already, I loved what Lucas said this morning. There's a present reality to our salvation. God has a plan for his people. And it's a life. A super abundant, overflowing, too much life to contain kind of life. A life that is marked by self-control, uprightness, and godliness. And remember, these Cretans have a reputation. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. But God has saved some of these Cretans and He has made a way for them to be different than those around them. God doesn't just save to save. He saves to change and fashion people into the image of Christ. And you can't be like Christ if you can't control yourself. You can't be like Christ if you can't say no to yourself. You can't be like Christ if you don't know how to handle yourself. We are, all of us, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We are attracted to sins. And at times, we're attracted to self-destruction. But grace trains us to be self-controlled in our lives. And upright, that word means just, righteous, properly agreeing to the law. Made righteous to do righteous deeds. Made righteous to be righteous. Like, I don't know, maybe God himself, which is godliness. To live like God would were he here in the flesh. Grace trains us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly. Grace trains us in what to avoid. And in what to engage in. Not this, but that. And grace appeared to us for that reason. As we live in the here and now. But it's not just for here and now. Verse 13. Oh boy. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So after we receive God's grace and as we're walking in it and being trained by it, we are waiting as well. 
Grace trains us to wait and to wait for something very specific and very exciting. We renounce ungodliness and pursue godliness and wait for what? For our blessed hope. And we talked about hope this past Wednesday. And we talked about what a blessing that hope is to be for us and how we need reminded over and over and over and over again that that hope is there, that hope is real, and that hope will be there when all is said and done. And it's not an, oh, I hope that happens kind of hope, but rather my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's that kind of hope. A hope that is an anchor behind the veil, like we talked about Wednesday. A hope that is the stabilizing force in our lives. And what is the blessed or happy hope that we're waiting for? Sure of its coming? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We sang this morning, One day the trumpet will sound with His coming. That's the blessed hope that we have. Glorious day, my beloved one bringing, my Savior Jesus is mine. Anybody ever been apart from somebody you love for a bit? And when you get back together, how happy you are? Our blessed hope is that exactly. There he is. That's that's my Jesus. There he is. I know him. I know him. That's the hope that we have. What a blessed, happy hope that is that we're waiting for. The grace of God has appeared in the life and ministry of Jesus. We saw that earlier, God in the flesh. And here we see that that same Jesus will appear again. And we wait for that appearing as our hope, our blessed, happy hope, when we will see Him in all of His glory, fully known for who He is and reigning as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords in full glory. An amazing technicolor. And that glory will appear in the person of who? Paul says here in our passage today, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That phrase, our great God and Savior, in reference to Jesus, celebrates the Godness of Jesus. And as you look all through Titus, you see God referenced as Savior in 1.3, 2.10, here in 2.13, and again in 3.4. God as Savior. And that's not counting the references to Jesus as Savior. That phrase, God our Savior, is a repeating theme in Titus. And here in 2.13, he's referred to as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a full-orbed picture of Jesus as God, God as Savior, and Jesus as God, our Savior. And that's all one big wad of awesome. And our God, our Savior, church is coming again. And that 
is our blessed hope. It's a happy hope that keeps us happily hopeful. And so we wait for that with eager anticipation. Why? Well, because of who he is and because of what he's done for us and what he's going to do for us. And we see what he has done for us beautifully in verse 14. Our great God and Savior who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What a verse. (laughs) What a verse. I mean, the whole passage is awesome. And this verse is just like that Amplified, exemplified. Grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all kinds of people. And grace will appear again in the person of Jesus. And this Jesus is our God. And this Jesus is our Savior. And do you know what our God did? He gave Himself for us. God Himself gave Himself God knew that the greatest gift he could possibly give to his people is himself. Not riches, not things and stuff, not health and prosperity. Give me God. So he gave himself. God laid down his life for us. The sovereign God of all time, maker and sustainer of all things, every galaxy, every atom in the universe, became a man and lived a perfect life and then laid that life down on a cross in first century Rome, not just showing up, not just saying, hey, I'm here, you better listen to me. He said that. That's not all he did. But instead, absorbing the wrath for our sins in his own body so that his wrath would never touch us. He redeemed us. That word, and we've talked about it a lot in Ruth, means to be caused, to be released to oneself by payment of a ransom. To be caused to be released to oneself by payment of a ransom. Jesus paid our ransom so that he could free us to be his. He is our kinsman redeemer, like we saw in Ruth. He purchased us so we could be his bride, his people. He redeemed us. And what did he redeem us from? Paul tells Titus that he redeemed us from all lawlessness. We were worthless to God. We were actually his enemies, dead in our sins, and his blood paid our ransom and freed us from our lawless deeds. Listen, giving us worth and power. We were helpless to do his will before, But he paid our ransom so that we could be his and that we could know and exemplify his power. P. 
Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God paid our sin debt that we owed to Him and purchased us for Himself and gave us a power to live in such a way that we would be different, that we would be better, that we would be with hope, with purpose, not lost in sin and worthlessness. He purified us for Himself, Paul says, and made us a people for his own possession. And watch this. Here's another one of those Titus purpose statements. Who are zealous for what? Heaven? Being happy? And we talked about being happy. And that's in the equation, but that's not the purpose. Those are all effects, but they're not purposes. He purified us for himself to be a people for his own possession out of lawlessness, out of powerlessness so that we would become people who are zealous for good works. Our redemption, our ransom, was from lawlessness, from futile ways, so we would be zealous for good works. We are saved to be a people whose passion is to do good works. Not to sit on God's shelf as a knick-knack that He has to dust off every so often, looking pretty but doing nothing. No, He redeemed us so we would be zealous, most eagerly desiring good works. Christianity is a do and be lifestyle type religion. We are to do the things Jesus would do. Be the kinds of people who show His goodness and power. Knowing is great. Gnosis is good. But our knowing, our epinosis is for the purpose of doing. We are redeemed for good works in our homes, our jobs, our communities, our church, our world. This was the goal of God redeeming you, Christian, for His glory, for the sake of others, and for your own good. We are to be zealous to be doing good works. Those good works cannot and will not save you. But your salvation is to produce those good works. It is the fruit and not the root of your salvation, as John Piper would say. Puritan Richard Baxter makes the statement that we are to be laborers, not loiterers in the kingdom of God. And that lines up with what Paul's saying here. Redeemed and purified to be zealous for good works. And may it be so in our lives. And just in case you wonder if Paul really means this, Our last verse, verse 15. Declare these things, Titus. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is so much like what Paul had said to Timothy back in 1 Timothy. Why? Because these things are doctrine. These things are commands from God Himself. Expressed through the apostle to the apostle's apostle. The most important thing to consider is that these things aren't up for debate. And they don't depend on how the hearers feel or think about them. Or when the hearers hear them. Declare them. 
Use these teachings, these instructions and commands to exhort and rebuke God's people. Exhort and rebuke, two words are corrective words. These teachings, these commands are the standard by which people are to conform to. If their thoughts, their feelings, or their behaviors don't line up with these teachings or commands, then exhort them, rebuke them, and call them to obedience to the pure doctrine, the godly commands. Heaven forbid that I stand up here and say, as Jason, this is what I think you should do. And I mean that. Heaven forbid that. The doctrine forbids that. What the doctrine calls for is for me to stand up and declare, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. And what's the source of that authority? My schooling? Well, I ain't got none. That's not completely true, but... What is the source of this authority? The denomination? Lord, no. Sorry, SBC. (laughs) And what's the source of this authority? Let's act like that. We'll cut that out. What's the source of this authority? Christ himself is the source of this authority. Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission, right? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he goes on to say in verse 20, telling his disciples, his apostles, teaching them, the disciples that you're making, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm always with you to the end of the age. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Let me say that again. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so... He commands his disciples to teach his commandments. Paul is calling upon that authority here as he tells Titus to teach these Christian commands with all authority. It's not pumping Titus up and saying, be confident in yourself, young man. It's not that at all. Paul himself would say, I came in weakness and in frailty and say, man, I got nothing, but I got this. And it's the word of God. And that's the authority that he's telling Titus to teach him. It's not because Titus said so. It's not even because Paul said so. It's because Jesus says so. And there's the apostolic authority. The words of the apostle are as of the words of the one who sent him. So Titus, let no one disregard you, not because of who you are, Titus, but because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has said. Titus, you are carrying the very commands of Christ himself. Jesus teaches, Jesus commands, so Titus, teach and command in his authority, which is all authority. And note that doctrine and commands go hand in hand. The doctrine determines the commands, and the commands are based upon the doctrine. And it all comes from the authority of the sovereign king of kings who loved us and gave himself for us. So yeah, Titus, all authority. Go with it. Preach, command, exhort, rebuke. Do what you have to do to bring these people into conformation of the teachings and the person of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. 
So um, <laughs> we're going to turn to application now. And I'm him hauling and I'm all shucksing. Because we got five application points this morning. It was going to be six, and I combined two, just so you know. Five Ks. Kiss. Kill. Keep. I'll stop with that. <laughs> Kiss, kill, keep. My favorite is kinetic and kinsman. Kiss, kill, keep, kinetic, kinsman. I need to write that book right there. Kiss, kill, keep, kinetic, kinsman. First application point is kiss. Y'all know what kiss stands for, right? Keep it simple, stupid. But we're in church, so we're going to say keep it simple, saints. Let it never be said that I called you stupid. (laughs) To your face. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. That's stupid. But anyway, when you get into the scriptures and you're trying to interpret the scriptures, especially when it comes to seeming contradictions, Occam's razor, The simplest explanation is usually the right one. So when we come across bringing salvation for all men, and we go, wow, I don't know, what what about election? We, We say all the time that God has a chosen group of people. What if he brought salvation to all men? This must be a problem. It's not a problem. What if it just made sense in the text that he's talking about all kinds of people? Could that possibly be that simple of an explanation be it? Yes. It really could. And it is, I think. I can confidently stand and say, as Paul is writing his thoughts down, he's thinking about all kinds of people, and he says salvation came for all kinds of these people like this. So we don't want to get into hermeneutical gymnastics about how this could apply here. And, and listen, the Bible is one giant meta narrative that is intricately connected from Genesis to Revelation, everything in it. And we need to be mindful of the whole counsel of God. And sometimes we just need to keep it simple. All kinds of men, after saying older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus and slaves do this. Because for, and don't forget that connecting word there, for the grace of God has appeared Bringing salvation for all kinds of men. It's pretty simple. So when the creation account says there was evening and morning the first day. Evening? Morning. Last time I calculated that, that was 24 hours. Could it simply possibly mean that? Huh. Worldwide flood, that's problematic, is it? If the flood account says the waters prevailed so mightily that all the high heavens under the whole heaven were covered, okay. I'm a simple man. I like curled up pepperoni with a little grease in the middle of it, okay? Let's not get overcomplicated. If Paul says to Timothy and Titus that men and women have roles specific to them, We don't have to find a way to figure out how to weasel out of that in our culture because we're so much smarter. 
than past cultures. Yeah, right. I saw something that said, if you think we're so much smarter than previous times, owner's manuals of cars used to teach you how to adjust the valves. And now they tell you not to drink the acid in the battery. So are we really that much smarter? (laughs) And listen, I'm not saying take every word of all the Bible and just say, well, the simple explanation is the right one. There are some things that are very difficult in the Bible. Okay, things we'll wrestle with until we see Jesus face to face. And the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And if I can't figure it out, I'm going to trust him that he's good and he's right and he's going to do what he's going to do and it's going to be for his glory and for my good. But if I can find a simple answer that is biblical and lines up with the text, go with it. Again, it's not foolproof, but don't complicate the simple stuff. Keep it simple, saints. So kiss, now kill. We saw in our passage today that we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Another Puritan, John Owen, said, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We feel like victims of our sins. We should make our sins victims of us. It's not enough to just be sorry for your sins. Did you hear me say that? It's not enough to just be sorry that you sinned again. Confess your faults. Repent. Go the other way. And before you make that U-turn, stab that sin in the forehead. Kill it. Oh, for a people of God who are zealous to be killing sin, not making excuses for it in their lives. Oh, for a group of saints who are abandoned to the termination of sin in their lives. And we will never be perfect. I'll refer to Lucas one more time. In the passage that he read out of uh, Gentle and Lowly, yeah, we, we are going to sin. And that's not okay. I think we hear that. We are going to sin. Okay, good. No, no. Not good. It's good that there's grace and mercy to cover that sin and that God doesn't count my trespasses against me. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. That's grace. But I want to be empowered by that grace with all holy zeal to kill that sin as well. To take measures, extreme measures, plucking out eyes, cutting off hands. And no, I don't think that means literally, by the way. Because that has no power against the desires of the flesh. But it is clear that we are to take extreme measures to completely kill and renounce our sins. Andrew was talking Wednesday about a guy who said, what if we should just abandon the internet because it has a pornographic art to it altogether? Well, I, 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 I can't do that because I'm, I've got to keep my feed refreshed. No, you don't. I've got a, a presence on social media. I need, no, no. Am I saying cut your internet cord? I'm not saying that. Necessarily. But if your leisure time 
recreational internet usage is causing you to sin, stop it! Put the phone down! Get off the computer! There is a pornographic arc to it. So the more you go back to it, the more prone you are to sin when you should be killing your sin. And the internet's not the only thing. I understand that. I get that. But boy, it's right here all the time, right? Let's be a people who are passionate about killing our sins, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, saying no to them. And if that means plucking my eye out and cutting my hand off, so be it, Lord Jesus. It's better to enter heaven with an eye and a hand gone than it is to go into hell having enjoyed all those sins that I held on to so lovingly and dependently. Kill it. Be killing it or it will be killing you. Kiss, kill, keep. Keep here means keep yourself. Which means those are the things we should do. We should keep ourselves in a self-controlled way. We should keep ourselves in an upright way. We should keep ourselves, conduct ourselves with godly lives. Which is why the grace of God has appeared. To empower you to keep yourself in the godly, upright, self-controlled path. On purpose. Crying out for the power of God to help you do it in a way that glorifies Him. And not just gratifies your flesh. Kill your sin and keep yourself in the way of self-controlled, upright and godly lives. On purpose. Not, oh, if it happens that it works out that maybe I chanced into some holy living today. Well, that was great. Thank you, God, for that. How about planning your day to be godly? Making it a priority to say, I'm walking the upright path today in the power of the Spirit. And listen, you can't do it without the power of the Spirit. Hence, the grace of God has appeared. Training you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Conduct yourselves. Keep yourself in the path that is self-controlled, upright, and godly in your life. In the power of the Spirit. And I'm going to add to the keep. Application point. Keep your eyes to the sky. Because you can't come out of this passage and not have a blessed hope of going, He's coming one day. And if my eyes are focused on the happy hope that He's coming again, that's going to help keep me in the self-controlled, upright, and godly path that I'm supposed to be on. If I'm focused on Him, waiting for His appearing... I'm not going to be looking at the things that would distract me and lead me into the sinful lifestyle that I'm supposed to be killing. Kiss, kill, keep. Now my favorite one. Kinetic. Let me bore you with a little physics. Two sentences worth of physics. Sorry, three. In physics... Kinetic energy, the kinetic energy of an object is the energy that it possesses due to its motion. 
It is defined as the work needed to accelerate a body of a given mass from rest to its stated velocity. Having gained this energy during its acceleration, the body maintains this kinetic energy unless its speed changes. Ooh. You're like, what are you talking about? The grace of God is full of kinetic energy. It's an empowering energy. It's an energy that we possess due to our motion. It's the work that we should be doing to get us to our stated velocity. And having gained this energy during our acceleration, the body maintains this kinetic energy unless its speed changes. The grace of God has come, given us the most potent kinetic energy you've ever seen in the universe. And it's for going, doing, working, moving, motion. Not the frozen chosen. Waiting for heaven one day when everything will be good and right. Oh, I'm waiting for that too. But right now i got something to do. We got something to do. So we use the kinetic energy of the grace of God to propel us forward into the work that we should be doing. Zealous for good works. Because we got so much energy in us, we can't help it. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. That's what He does. That's why we're commanded to be being filled with the Holy Spirit because that increases our momentum And this uphill climb to heaven all of a sudden becomes a downhill avalanche of His power working in us and through us. And there is no power of hell that can stop that kinetic energy. None! You're not a victim. As you kill sin and keep yourself in the godly way, the kinetic energy of the power of the Holy Spirit of God makes you zealous for more and more and more and more and more good works. Until we see him face to face. And that kinetic energy propels us into the eternal future where we reign and rule and work with Christ for all eternity. Kiss, kill, keep kinetic, and finally, kinsman. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He has redeemed us. We who were dead, who were worthless, he ransomed with his own blood, dying a cruel, unthinkable, unfathomable death on a Roman cross at the hands of godless men so that he could say, you now have worth. You now have value because my blood has purchased you. He redeemed us from worthlessness, from a worthless way of living, into a lifestyle zealous for good works. And he did it for his glory. He did it for our good. And he did it By redeeming us with his own blood. The blood of the God-man. 
paid the penalty for our sins. And maybe you sit here this morning, maybe you're hearing the sound of my voice over the airwaves and the internet. You're not bad for being on the internet, by the way. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't agree with that. Okay? I don't believe that. What don't you believe? Do you not believe that Jesus Christ was a real man? Nah, I got a problem with that. Okay? Do you not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh? Yeah, I got a problem with that one. Do you not believe that this God man died on a cross? Oh, I, I believe Jesus died on a cross, yeah. Do you not believe that the blood of the Son of God, God in the flesh, was able to save you from your sins? Yeah, I don't believe that either. And so my life is not any different. My life is not going to change because I don't believe it. I agree to the physical aspect of the person Jesus, but I don't agree that he was God in the flesh and that his blood ransoms people from the penalty of their sins. I just don't believe it. I would just leave you with this question. Would you? Would you believe it? Not I told you I don't. It's not what I ask you. Would you? Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all kinds of people. And all those people at one time in their lives did not believe, just like you don't believe right now. And grace came in like a screaming eagle and woke them up and gave them life. So I would ask you this morning, sinner, alienated from the things of God, would you please believe? God commands you to. And one day he's going to split the sky and he's going to come back and he's going to judge every individual. And the main thing he's going to judge us based upon is, what did you do with the sacrifice of my son who shed his blood to redeem you from your sins? Well, I didn't believe it. Then depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That's going to happen whether you believe it or not. And I say that with desperation in my heart, not anger or hostility towards you. I'm saying, please believe the gospel. Because at a point in time, Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh and lived a perfect life and died on a Roman cross, spilling his blood to pay the penalty for my sins and your sins. And he died, he was buried, he was resurrected. Yeah, I don't believe that either, would you? He showed himself alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days. Then he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father on a throne where he ever lives to make intercession for his people and where he will get up one day and return to the earth to come to judge the living and the dead. Would you please believe that? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have provided a kinsman redeemer. You came as that kinsman redeemer, God, in the form of your son. And you spilled your own blood to purchase your people back and to pay the penalty for their sins, calling them out of a life of worthlessness into a life of productive, zealous good works. 
So God, help us to be killing sin. Help us to keep ourselves in the godly way, keeping our eyes toward the prize, our blessed happy hope that Jesus is coming again. And may we live with that kinetic energy, that kinetic power that your Holy Spirit provides in the form of grace that we might glorify our blessed kinsman redeemer. And we ask that you would do it, God, so that you get the glory and we get the good from it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may that God equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but please stay and eat with us. If you